Please again take your Bibles and turn to John's Gospel in the chapter 13. John's Gospel, the chapter 13. Okay, we're going to look at the verses 31 and 32 this evening. Let's read them together. John 13, verse 31. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Amen. Let's please bow together in prayer. Again, there are deep and wonderful truths in these verses. We need the Lord's help. Coming towards the end of the Lord's Day, uh, physical weariness can set in. And, uh, please pray for yourself, pray for the preacher, uh, that we know the help that we need to properly engage ourselves in this time of Bible study this evening. Let's please seek the face of God together. Eternal God, it is our desire to glorify Thee in the coming moments. We, we want, O oh Lord, to show Thee all the praise and glory of Your name as we give careful attention to the Word of God. And we do bring glory to your name, O God, when we properly attend to what you revealed in the word. So help us to do this, O Lord. We need the help of the Spirit of God. And the flesh may be, uh, the Spirit may be willing, but the flesh is, is often weak. And so grant us physical and mental strength to carefully consider the word, to see the truths contained therein. Well, indeed, our hearts will be drawn out to your Savior, that we'd see him as being altogether lovely. Bless the word to your souls. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. One of the features of John's gospel is that the writer presents the Lord's work as a plan being executed according to God's sovereign time scale. We can say that's true of the entire Bible, but it really comes to the fore in John's writings. We've already noticed in verse number 1 of chapter 13, the reference to the hour. Now, when before the feast, the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world. Again, we see reference to that departure, even the words he read in the latter part of this chapter, and more of that in coming studies. But the reference to the Lord's R is clearly in the Lord's mind and in John's mind. We're back in chapter 8, verse number 20. These words speak Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. And that language gives us the understanding that God is sovereignly controlling and orchestrating even the hands of the Lord's enemies. Those hands could not move against the Lord until the hour was come. All of this is happening according to the sovereign timetable of the Lord. Furthermore, we should see that in John's gospel, Christ understands his own work to be the fulfilling of a commission given to him by the Father. He refers often to being sent from heaven or sent from God. He even refers to the fact that his work is to do the will of the Father. And so he sees his own ministry in that context of a sovereign plan given to him by his Father. That will, the will that Christ executes, is not general but specific, even down to the point of time. That helps explain the time reference here in verse number 31. 
when he was gone out, now is the Son of Man glorified. Judas's tragic determination to proceed with his evil deed is the final piece that sets in motion the events leading up to the cross. Nothing else needs happen now. If you like, as the Roman emperor said, the die is cast, the Rubicon is crossed. It is now time to go forward with the plan for the next event we see leading to the Lord's death is the betrayal of Jesus. Okay, as I understand, there are chapters dealing with teaching and instruction in the glorious prayer of chapter 17, but really the next event in history is Judas coming to the garden and giving that betrayer's kiss upon the cheek of his Lord. It is a remarkable thing. Judas is gone. Nothing else now needs to happen. Hence, verse 31 says, Now is the Son of Man glorified. Immediately we must understand that what we're seeing here is that the Lord's glorification occurs in the unfolding of the events surrounding the cross. If Judas' departure sets in time that event, and the Lord now says, now is the Son of Man glorified, it is clear that all that is now transpiring is going to redound to the glory of the Son of Man. Therefore, immediately we see that the glorification of Christ centers around his work upon the cross. Now, more needs said, but that is essentially the point of this verse. And to preempt the message, Christ is obedient, wherefore God hath highly exalted him. And if you do make uh, pencil notes in the margin of your Bible, you could certainly put Philippians chapter 2 in the margin beside verse 31 and 32 of John chapter 13. It is the sense that the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in the Son of Man, and as such, God will glorify His Son in Himself. Yes, the language is intricate. It is somewhat complex. The sentence structure is, is complex, but the truths are glorious. And there are certainly several features in these verses that I believe should draw our hearts out in love for Christ this evening. If you see your outline in the bulletin that's uh, before, you'll see that uh, my, my plan tonight is really look at these verses by considering four separate questions. Yeah, and you know I do this from time to time, and rather than having uh, sort of formal points, uh, I think sometimes it helps us to look through a verse by asking questions. And as I turn these verses over my mind, these are the questions that I find myself asking. Who is glorified? How is he glorified? When is he glorified? And then how is God then glorified in him? And so that's the questions we're going to look at uh, one by one this evening. And so the first thing then is to ask the question, who? Who is glorified? Well, of course, in our verse, there are two persons that are mentioned, or if you like, two entities that are mentioned uh, that are glorified, the Son of Man and God. Uh, I think we'll see later on this reference to God is God in three persons. But there are these two entities, the Son of Man in a particular sense, and then God being glorified in him in the latter part of verse number 31. Now, the helpful thing for us to note is to consider this description of Jesus as the Son of Man being glorified. We're going to leave aside, and God is glorified in him until question number four. So just leave that aside and park that for now. 
But let's think about this description of Jesus. Now is the Son of Man glorified. I'm not going to take a time to prove that this term, this Son of Man, is a term that Jesus himself takes for himself more than any other. But it is a very important term in this context. The Lord does not say, now is the Messiah glorified, or now is the Son of God glorified, or, or now is Jesus glorified, although those things are all true. But he deliberately chooses this title of the Son of Man. When you think of that term, it's certainly used in the Old Testament simply as the description of humanity. He is a son of a man, a son of Adam in that sense. He is, a, he is a bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. But that's not the way that the Lord is using this term in this passage. So to help us ask the question, who is glorified the son of man is glorified, I want to look at two parallel Old Testament passages that I think will very quickly lead us to understand what is happening in this verse. The first one, of course, is Daniel chapter 7. Turn back to Daniel chapter 7, please. It is generally understood that when the Lord takes the term the Son of Man, He is more than likely referring to this title used of one approaching the ancient days in Daniel's vision of Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to take a time to read from verse number 9. Or Daniel sees a vision, I beheld, till the thrones were cast down. These are, again, the thrones of earthly empires. And the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. Uh, this is a, a picture of the eternal God in glory. The Ancient of Days, a description of the glory of God in the heavenly realm. Verse 10, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the judgment was set, and the books were open. Again, you'll see and read in those verses things that would take your mind to Revelation and the vision of John as he sees the Lord sitting upon the throne. Well, in verse number 11, it continues, I beheld them because the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. Now, again, without going into detail here, we're looking at, at God's triumph over all manner of earthly empires. And then verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory. You see that reference there to the glory being given to the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days? given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages shall serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. The contrast is every earthly kingdom rises and falls, but this son of man's kingdom will never ever fall. Now you are well instructed and well versed in the New Testament scriptures. And you know what happens in the gospels. Christ Jesus dies, is buried, and rises again. And before he ascends, 
he makes a statement, all power, all authority, all dominion is given unto me. And so what we're seeing here in Daniel chapter 7 is a vision of the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days in the clouds of heaven, verse number 13, having accomplished success in conflict and then being given an everlasting kingdom, all power and all authority. I think you see immediately a reference to the Son of Man in His ascension, entering the right hand of God and ruling and reigning till all His enemies are put under His feet. That every people, nation, and language should serve Him. Christ reigns. Go into all the world. Proclaim the gospel. Make disciples of every nation. All of those things are, are all underscored in this passage as Christ rules and reigns. And so keep Daniel 7 in mind. That's, that's very, very important. But look then across to Matthew chapter 26. And in Matthew chapter 26, we see the Lord in the midst of his trial by the high priest. And the high priest is answering questions and bringing accusations, and the Lord Jesus holds his peace, verse number 63. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tellest whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. Clearly, the Jewish readers of Daniel chapter 7 understood this one like the Son of Man was no mere man, but rather was the Lord God who had dominion and power as Daniel's anointed Messiah. And so they accused him of blasphemy. But again, please note the reference here. You shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. It is my conviction that this reference to coming in the clouds of heaven is a reference to the Lord's ascension, not his return. What you're seeing here is a description of the triumph of Jesus as the Son of Man who approaches the Ancient of Days. That's why it's so important what Luke says in Acts chapter 1. And when he'd spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up on a cloud received him out of their sight. You see, I want to draw a line in your minds right now. There is glory in the Old Testament Scriptures. It's the glory of the pillar of fire and cloud that comes upon the tabernacle. It's known as the Shekinah glory of God. And so now we're describing Jesus as saying, now is the Son of Man glorified. And you think of the Son of Man in Daniel 7 and in Matthew 26, and you're seeing a description of the ascension of Jesus Christ having that everlasting kingdom that shall never, ever be cast down. This is the glory of the Son of Man. So that's, if you like, parallel passage number one. Who is glorified here? The Son of Man is glorified here. Who is the Son of Man? It's Daniel 7's Son of Man. The one who comes to the Ancient of Days in the clouds. But you've also got Psalm 24. 
which again also brings similar language to bear. In Psalm 24, again, you look at the end of verse, or verse number 7 and following, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Again, he continues that way. Who is this King of glory? Verse 10, the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Again, we're seeing a description here, a, a prophetic description of a glorified King. Verse number 3, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul to vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord. Who's going to be glorified by God? This one with clean hands and a pure heart. It's a reference to the triumphant Son of Man and Son of God, the incarnate Christ who obeys the law of God perfectly, the sinless Savior without spot or blemish, and who ascends into the glory of God. He is the King of glory. He is the Lord of hosts. This is what the Lord is referring to here. And again, you're seeing yet again these two parallels, the glorification of the Son of Man in connection particularly with His ascension. But the ascension ultimately is the culmination of all the events that begin as Judas goes out. Judas goes out, why? He took the sop and Satan entered. Judas goes out and the conflict rages, but the Son of Man triumphs in that conflict. He wins the battle on the cross. Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him. And so the Lord can now say, now is the Son of Man glorified. It's a glorious description of Christ's triumphant work. Who is glorified? The Son of Man is glorified. Secondly, then we ask the question, well, how and in what way is he glorified? Now, here it's vital to remember all that is understood by this word glorified. It has a, it has a, a somewhat of a breadth of meaning, but there's one thing we must remember. God is altogether glorious. And therefore, to glorify God is not to add to God's glory in any way, but it is to display His glory. It is to manifest or reveal His glory. And do you know what's wonderful? That's exactly how John refers to the glory of Jesus Christ in his gospel. He consistently refers to His glory as something that is seen. Turn back, please, to John chapter 1. We've seen the identity. The Son of Man is, of course, a reference to Jesus Christ, particularly in His triumph and His victory on the cross. But how does that, again, manifest His glory? Well, John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There are many, many things in that verse, but a couple of things stand out. One is that it was possible to see the Lord's glory. They could behold the Lord's glory. And that glory was the glory of the Godhead. The equivalent glory of the Godhead. Now you may ask the question, well, how did they behold His glory? 
Well, certainly they beheld his glory at the transfiguration. Again, if you can keep a finger in John's gospel, just quickly jump across to Second Peter chapter 1. I know Peter's speaking here and not John, but John was part of that company on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's one of that inner circle of three. He is, after all, the one whom Jesus loved. And so it's three, they're on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Second Peter chapter 1, verse number 16, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we have known or made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Okay, you see clearly the inner circle of three, they beheld the glory of Christ, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, when they were there on the mount, when it says in verse number 17 that Jesus received from God honor and glory. So we're seeing in John chapter 13 that the Son is going to be glorified by the Father. Well, there was unveiling of that on the mount. Pulling back at the curtain for a season to allow the disciples a glimpse of that glory, the glory of Christ. They could see it. It was manifest, displayed before their eyes. But in John's gospel, the glory of Christ was not only seen in the context, if you like, of the transfiguration. Well, look at John chapter 2. John chapter 2 and the verse number 11. It's the commentary after the miracle of the change of the water wine and the marriage of Canaan. And verse 11 says, This beginning of miracles did Jesus and Canaan of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. See, no mere man could do what Christ did on that occasion. And thus the miracle is again a pulling back of the curtain to get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. And the same is true over in John chapter 11. Again, I'm not, I'm not manufacturing these things. These are consistent themes in John's gospel. You see it when you study the book carefully. John chapter 11 and the verse number 4. It's a reference, of course, to the death. Well, the sickness initially of Lazarus and then his death. And then verse number 4, when Jesus heard that he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Again, another description where Jesus Christ, as he stands upon this earth, is glorified as the curtain is pulled back, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, but the veil removed for a season, the miracle of Canaan, and now at Lazarus' tomb, and they beheld his glory. Yet, you go back to John chapter 7, and the verse number 39, I reference the Lord describing the Spirit of God, but this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe in him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So here you've got to embrace the entire text. John says, we beheld his glory. He makes a point, the glory was manifest. Canaan, Lazarus' grave, on the Mount of Transfiguration, we see these glimpses of the Lord's glory, and yet he's not, he's not fully and finally glorified yet. That awaits the ascension. So in what sense then do we understand Jesus Christ to be glorified? 
Well, one last cross-reference to this section. That's John 17, perhaps the most significant of all. John 17. And the verse number 4 is very, very close parallel to John 13, verse 31 and 32. I have glorified thee on the earth. Jesus, of course, glorifying the Father. I have finished the work which thou gives me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thy me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. This is not for one second describing a recovery of deity which was never lost but rather a restoring of the manifestation of deity in the glory of heaven. The Lord Jesus, now in a glorified human body, possessing the glory of the triune God, as he enters the courts of God, as the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days in the clouds. It all comes together. See, what is it when it says the Son of Man is glorified? It is that the Son of Man is displayed as to his identity, as the Christ, the Son of God. John's very theme in his gospel, you read this book, the point of it all is that you believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And so his glory is displayed so that you believe that this man Jesus is Son of Man and Son of God. The Messiah, the only Savior of sinners. And so him being glorified is the manifestation, the display of his identity as the incarnate Son of God, God's anointed, appointed Redeemer of sinners. And thus, he returns to heaven to the enjoyment of that eternal glory. I trust you follow that. The glorification of the Son is the display of his identity as the Son of God. But thirdly, then, you ask the question, well, when is he glorified? Again, we have time markers in our text. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And yet, when you look on down through verse number 32, there's more to it than just simply that word now. Verse 31 says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. So I understand all this. Well, clearly, the timing of the Lord's glory must be connected to the Lord's finished work. You get that from John 17. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou giveth me to do. So God is glorified in him. Verse 31 of John 13 must correspond to some degree and in some way with the finished work of our Savior. Here, again, I need you to be patient. Christ is glorified at different times, according to the Scriptures. There are different ways in which the Lord is glorified at different seasons. So work backwards, please, with me. I want to begin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Because over there we see a description of the Lord being glorified in his glorious return. By the way, I appreciate you sort of scribbling and taking notes. If you want the texts and the reference here, just please ask sometime. Just feel free to ask. Give me a, drop me an email, a text. Please, can I have those texts to look at this again? Please feel free to do that. But in 2 Thessalonians 
chapter 1, verse number 7, Paul begins to describe the return of Christ as a, a means whereby God will, will bring judgment upon those who are against the gospel. In verse 7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed. Listen how it's described. Not, not shall come, but shall be revealed. Shall be unveiled from heaven with his mighty angels. Oh, we described already the, the glorification involves the display of who Jesus is. It continues, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall be come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe. Again, verse number 12, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. The second coming of Christ will be a marvelous display of Christ's glory. Not only his intrinsic glory as the glorified Son of Man and Son of God, but his glory as the Redeemer, as his people are glorified in him, and he is glorified in them, that with that glorious display, he did see the travail of his soul and satisfied. It is the display of Christ's successful work. He's glorified in his return. And yet, over a page or two in your Bible, you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. And you see that Christ's glory does not await his return. Yeah, that's the final display. But in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in the verse number 16, you have that hymn or confession of the faith. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. So I'm not going back over the ground of Daniel 7 and Psalm 24, but again, we're seeing here the Lord is glorified in his ascension. But even that's not all. You go back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 and the verse number 4, you have a description of the Lord being glorified in his resurrection. In his resurrection, it says there, the gospel is concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power. And the sense there is not, of course, that the resurrection makes Jesus the son of God. That would be nonsense. The sense there is the resurrection is a public declaration of Jesus as the victorious son of God who has triumphed over Satan in the grave, and therefore he declared publicly the, the woman go to the grave. He, he is not here. He is risen. What is that? It's the glorification of the Son of God and the Son of Man. He's glorified in his resurrection. And yet even that's not all. You turn back to John chapter 19. Because even upon the cross, there is an act that brings glory to the Son of Man and the Son of God. It's John chapter 19 and the work of Pilate. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Given unto him dominion and power and glory as the one who comes to the ancient of days. Pilate does not know the power of those words written upon that inscription, 
but it is a display of Jesus Christ as the King of the Jews. And it's significant when you look at verse number 20. This title then read many of the Jews. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. The point being, the known language of, of that time and that season could read that description, and Jesus Christ, the veil is taken aback for a bit, that they can see the glory of that one, though he hangs in shame upon the cross, the title above his head announces his glory. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. But even that's not all. We've already seen going backwards, second coming, ascension, resurrection, cross, transfiguration, Lazarus' grave, miracle of Canaan. What you're seeing and what I want you to appreciate is when you get to John 13 and you're about now and straightway, you're seeing a description of the phases of the unveiling of Christ's glory. That we're seeing it little by little, section by section, piece by piece, until His final glory is revealed in His return. All of these things are phases in the unveiling of Christ's glory. And so what verse 30 and 30, or sorry, verse 31 and 32 are referring to is this. Now is the Son of Man glorified, teaching us that the Lord's work on the cross reveals His identity. And in his obedience, the Father is then glorified in him. Verse number 31. Therefore, God shall glorify him in himself. Verse number 32. And shall straightway glorify him. So the cross presents the glory of Jesus. In his shame, we see his glory. And because he obeys to the cross then the Godhead will glorify the Son as he ascends in triumph. And that will happen straightway. That's what's being taught in these verses. When is the Son glorified? In his cross. And then finally, at least for this point, in his ascension until he returns in his glory. You know, it is... Really wonderful, and again, I appreciate there's complexity in some of these words. But in very simple terms, when Judas goes out, the cross is so certain that the glory of Christ is guaranteed to follow. The Lord is saying this right now. Judas has gone out. Nothing and no one, not even Satan, can prevent the glorification of the Son of Man. He shall indeed triumph. And I believe with all of my heart, these are words intended to comfort and strengthen the disciples. If they would grasp what is being said here, they'd understand this Jesus. He is Son of Man and Son of God, and He indeed triumphs in His glory forever and forever. We see in his obedience on the cross, we see a public display of the Son of God, the Son of Jehovah. Jesus Christ, he hangs upon that cross, is the manifestation of the one, the child that shall be given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. 
His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government peace, there shall be no end. The one given is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and the cross displays the suffering servant as the one whose government is upon his shoulders. It displays his glory. In the shame of the cross, we see the identity of our Savior. What a work it is. All that transpires upon the cross brings glory to the Son of God. This very meeting tonight happens because of that cross work. We come here and the Lord is glorified. Christ's work secures his glory. That's the when of the Son of Man being glorified. And finally and briefly, how is God then glorified? And that's mentioned here. The Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself. Again, the if there is since, since God be glorified in him. So in what sense is God glorified in the obedience of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man? Now here, I'm not going to go into this in detail, but just mention this. I don't believe, and I've been, <laughs> I've been stumbling across this throughout the message. I don't believe the reference to God here in verse 31 is restricted to the Father. John does do that sometimes. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, his Son, therefore God must refer to the Father. But here I believe it's being used in a general sense for the Trinity. You see, the doctrine of the Trinity, again, this is not the point of tonight's message, affirms that the three persons work together when they work. So whilst we attribute certain, if you like, economic functions to various persons in the Godhead, we should not assume that when the Father works, the Son is not working. The Trinity work in cooperation in every work that they do. Spurgeon says this, When thou sayest, Savior, remember there is a Trinity in that word, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, this Savior being three persons under one name. Thou canst not be saved by the Son without the Father, nor by the Father without the Son, nor by the Father and Son without the Spirit. But as they are one in creation, so are they one in salvation, working together in one God for our salvation. And unto that God be glory everlasting, world without end. Amen. Spurgeon so clear in his understanding of the, of the working of God as Trinity. And what we see here, I believe, is that in the work of Jesus as the incarnate Son of God, we are indeed seeing a work that brings glory to the triune God. Sent of the Father, filled with the Spirit, unto obedience and unto that work upon the cross. All of these things, they manifest the glory of God. And so in what sense is God glorified then? Again, in the display of all that he is. And in the cross, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, we see the glorious display of the triune God. On the cross, we see a God who is so holy that presents sin to be an offense to this God. Darkness descends upon the cross. 
on that cross, we see the justice of God. We see the wrath of God being poured upon the Son. Whereby the Son cries, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You want to see the wrath and justice of God, the holiness of God, you see it displayed upon the cross. Yet on that cross we see mercy. We see God who spared not his Son in justice, so that he might spare those who trust in the Son in justice. That in mercy he might deliver us from our sins. A mercy that arises out of the love of God for sinners. Holiness, justice, mercy, love, all displayed in the work of Christ on the cross. Of course, that love, which is a love of supreme faithfulness to his promises. The truthfulness of God displayed upon the cross. He remembered and kept all his promises. A marvelous display of the power of God. He's buried. And yet the power of God breaks the bars of death itself. All of which displays the marvelous wisdom of God. No man could ever concoct such plan of redemption. But on the cross we see the glorious power and wisdom of God displayed. I do love the hymn we sang at the start tonight. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When the prince of life or ransom shed for us his precious blood. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy, through a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace, perfect justice, kissed a guilty world in love. In the cross, we see the glorious unity of the attributes of God. And as Christ glorifies the Father, He glorifies the Spirit. He glorifies Himself as Son. God is glorified. Glory be to Father. Glory be to Son. Glory be to the Holy Spirit. I trust you're a Christian tonight. And by that I mean I trust you believe in the Trinity. And you believe in the person of Christ, Son of Man and Son of God. You believe there's only one and only Savior of sinners. I trust you believe these things with all of your hearts. For the just shall live by faith. Let's pray. Let's bow together, please. We close tonight's service. Let's look to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we look to thee again in Christ's name. We thank you, dear Father, for again inspiring the Apostle John to pen these words. Granting him the remembrance of all that Jesus taught. Thank you even for that realization of the promise of the Spirit in the later chapters. The Spirit testifying of Christ. Oh Lord, may our hearts be filled with love and devotion and worship for thee, our God. Help us, O oh Lord, to, to delight, to receive the meat of the word. And to seek to grow in understanding of these things. Glory be to thee, our God. May we, O Lord, live in such a way and speak in such a way as to display all that you are in this world until Christ returns and his glory is finally revealed. Eternal God, we look to thee. Bless us this week. May your hand indeed rest and abide upon the people of God. Help us to walk 
in your fear, with your favor resting upon us, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.